The gospel lesson is taken from Luke's gospel, chapter 15, and I will be reading verses 1 through 7. This is the parable of the lost sheep. Hear God's word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I, I had a hard time uh, choosing a text and putting this together. I usually preach the lectionary, but I tried to choose something that I thought was appropriate. Uh, I don't know how successful I was, uh, but this is, um, was late in coming to me, but nonetheless, uh, my text is Philippians 4, uh, verses 1 through 9. I was about 16 or 17 years of age when I persuaded my parents not to make me go on the family vacation. I just despise going on a vacation when all my friends in the neighborhood and around and uh, where I played basketball nearly every day and two or three friends. And my love interests, I think, that kept me there too. <laughs> they were going to be gone for about a week visiting historical sites and people in Virginia. A neighbor across the street had agreed to look out after me. And as I recall, my, my parents gave me some instructions. I don't remember the exact instructions, but they were something along these lines. I was not to go beyond the boundaries of the neighborhood. I was to have no friends in the house overnight. And I was to be home every evening before nine o'clock. The car had got, hardly gotten out of the city limits, I'm sure, before I called my best friends over to play penny ante poker and to have something to eat. Within two days, we had uh, eaten everything in the house that was edible. <laughs> and within 24 hours, I had broken every promise I made to my parents. As for the condition of the house, well, let me say that it, in short order, was uh, uh, something uh, needed to be desired in it. It was a mess. After about my three, about three days, I think it was, I'm not sure, my, my friends all agreed unanimously to stay away from the house. <laughs> you see, my, my friends were motivated to depart because there was an outbreak of fleas in the house. <laughs> Within about five days, when one walked into the house, it meant being attacked by these voracious, biting things. I can personally testify that a hungry free, a flea can jump about three feet 
and bite you within two seconds. They were all over me, no matter where I went in the house. You see, we had a long-haired sheepdog, and his absence allowed the eggs that he fell off of him to, to um, uh, hatch and just was, a, was an amazing, it was an infestation. It was impossible to stay in the house, much less sleep. And after a miserable night with the fleas, I got an idea. You know, necessity is the mother of invention, they say. And I went outside and gathered up some neighborhood dogs. <laughs> enticed them in for some tea and a little R&R at the Vance Bread and Breakfast. And they eagerly accepted the invitation. And their presence solved my immediate problem in short order. Let me rephrase it. I can tell by the quality, quantity, and vigor of their scratching that my flea problem had been successfully delegated to my canine neighbors. <laughs> now all I had to do was to clean the house before my parents came back home, and I did somewhat. What does all this have to do with my sermon today? Well, you might be wondering, so am I. <laughs> well, it has to do with this. I want to leave you some instructions and some exhortations as I uh, take a journey. Moreover, there is a strong likelihood that unintended consequences or contingencies will arise that none of you can foresee. And they'll happen over the next few months and you'll begin to wonder, are we able to meet these challenges? Will the office of the church, will our fellowship be able to meet these challenges that arise? You, you don't see them now. You know, the lid has kind of been kept on for a while. But then you open the lid. Something unforeseen comes out. And that's when you have to be able to adapt and be creative and charitable. More charitable maybe than you think that is in you. To be able to work together to make Westminster's ministry continue unabated and even prosper. Now, my text is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, and I hope you see the parallels here. There are the exhortations, just like my parents gave me exhortations. There are unforeseen contingencies, just like I experienced some unforeseen contingencies. And what you find in this text are some imperatives. And for the smaller children, that means an obligation or a command. These imperatives sum up much of what the Apostle Paul desired to see manifest in the life of the church. These imperatives, in, in some ways, constitute an outlook, a worldview. To heed them is to give you a different perspective on life. These imperatives are especially valuable and instructive in times of change and uncertainty. When followed, they will help fortify to motivate 
you as a body to do the work of the Lord, to do the work of Christ in this place. Now let's look at the elements. Let us look at the elements in the text. But let me give you the context first. We know from chapter 1 that Paul is writing from prison. He was, after all, by his own admission, imprisoned a number of times. He only mentions two or three specifically. A case can be made, though, that this imprisonment was the imprisonment that he underwent in Rome when he was under house arrest. And if this is the case, this letter written to the Philippian Christians about 800 miles away and a dozen years after he had founded the church, probably in the early 60s of the first century, He's writing from prison. He really doesn't know what the outcome of this imprisonment is going to be. Capital offenses have been lodged against him. He's been indicted. Now, it's to be noticed here that Paul had a long-term relationship with the Philippian church. He loved that church. It was in his heart. And this church about a 12-year relationship long by the standards and the way the Apostle Paul operated, was dear to him. The second thing to notice is that two women in the church were not getting along very well. Churches always have problems, make no mistake. There's no such thing as a problem-free church. I'm always, in some ways, chagrined when people come back sometimes and report to me how such and such a church is operating so well. They see the surface. They see the Sunday morning worship with some good singers, some good musicians. They don't see the nitty-gritty and the day-to-day living and the ordinary, if you will, conflicts that arise about associating with any other person. For some reason, we have utopianism in our heart. I think it's because we have heaven in our hearts or eternity in our hearts. But more damage has been done by trying to create a utopian society, even in the church, than any other philosophy that you could think of. We we seek perfection and we make perfection, if you will, the enemy of the good. Every church has problems. These two women were having problems. And their names are recorded here. The Apostle Paul has a habit, by the way, of doing two things. He rarely ever mentions the names of his enemies. Rarely. That ought to tell you something. But he's always quick to mention those that are his friends and are helpful to him in the ministry. You see, he's dwelling on the right things. And in this case, he's not the kind of person to blow something up. He minimizes the problem. He says, this could be worked out. 
These two women can work this out. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Synthache to agree with each other in the Lord. It actually says to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, these women are to be of the same mind in the Lord. That's in other translations, and it's a better translation than in the NIV. To be of the same mind in the Lord is to have the mind and humility of Christ. And if you go back and read chapter 2, you'll see that the apostle says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus when he humbled himself. The eternal Lord of glory humbled himself and became obedient even to his death on a cross. And so Paul is confident that these problems will be overcome. The first thing to do is to recognize that there are always problems to be solved. There are relationships. There are always relationships to be repaired. And so Paul is quite confident that this is a blip on the screen. And most things are a blip. Just don't blow the blips up into a big thing. We have a way of uh, turning molehills into mountains. And that's the wrong thing to do. As a matter of fact, we ought to be turning mountains into molehills by the grace of God. The third thing to notice in this text is that Paul is writing to let the church know that he is fine. He's under house arrest. He was under house arrest for about two years. And he writes to tell them that as far as he knows, he's doing fine. He doesn't know at this point whether he's going to be released or what. So he writes to let the church know that he's in good shape. And he says, if it does end in my death, I want you to know for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain, he says in the first chapter. Now, there's a fourth reason you should understand, and then I'll get to my imperatives that his desire to continue in the Lord and to carry out his mission in Christ. His desire is that this church in Philippians continue in the good work that he's established them in. Whatever happens, that is, whether Paul is to see them again or not, whatever happens, he says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And let me stop here and say that every one of you are here to serve the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the church. It's to serve the gospel. We worship in the gospel. We fellowship in the gospel. We go and reach others and do evangelism in the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're here to serve Christ and his message. We are subservient to that. And so Paul is writing to encourage them to keep on keeping on. Paul's motive for writing is to remind this church that while they are Roman citizens, and most of the people in Philippi were Roman citizens, they also had a citizenship in heaven. And though they were Romans, they were to live as citizens of another kingdom. Now, this brings us to these imperatives. There are more than three, but I'm only going to mention three because of time. 
The first one he said is very simple. It's not complicated. Stand firm in the Lord. That's verse 1 of chapter 4. Stand, of course, is a metaphor, a figure of speech. And all metaphors and figures of speech are to be understood in the context in which they are rendered. People stand for many things. You do. I hear about some of the things that you stand for all the time. Sometimes we, we, we might stand for the same team. Some of us may not stand as strongly for one thing as another person does. But we stand or take positions on things. We dedicate ourselves to something. We, we screw up our courage and, and uh, summons up our resolve to take a stand. It's by nature that human beings take stands. The New York Times takes stands all the time, and most of them I can't stand. <laughs> but context is everything. In this chapter, Paul is saying, stand in the Lord. Understand what you have received. Understand that you have received Christ by faith. You have been baptized in his name. You have received communion with the people of God. Stand in him and be faithful as a church. In chapter 2, for instance, before we even get to chapter 4, Paul urges the church to remain faithful so that he may boast about them on the day of Christ. In other words, he would like to be able to say before the judgment throne of God, this is my work. They've been faithful. They've taken their stand. They have served you. And Paul would say, then I have done nothing but point them to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. For Paul then standing firm in the Lord was the key. They were all baptized in the name of Christ. That is, they received their identity, not, not by Paul, but in Christ. And they were to stay true to Christ and the great head and king of the church, regardless of whether he could come to them or not. Now, I, have the same, I don't have the same confidence in myself that the Apostle Paul had. I, I can tell you, he was quite a confident person. I do have a lot of confidence. Uh, sometimes it's misplaced in myself. Uh, I'm not really an insecure person as such. I've never felt overly insecure, anxiety, things. But the Apostle Paul had an abundance of confidence. He seems to have had a, a very special measure of grace. He, uh, he was confident that he was doing the Lord's work that God would give him his grace in the time of need. And he calls these people to stand faithful as he has been faithful. That you will stand firm in the gospel and that you will be willing to spend and to be spent for Jesus Christ. Certainly the Apostle Paul did. He says early in this epistle that I have been poured out for the sake of Christ. He exhausted himself to make sure that the church of Christ would prosper. Now, do you have that kind of perspective about the church? You know, something is being done in each true church of Christ that the world underestimates tremendously. 
Something is always being done by the Spirit of God in the body of Christ that the world cannot see or even imagine that it's worthwhile. I've heard comedians joke about wasting your time in church and throwing your money away on those activities. You're giving some time to the church in some quarters not even called benevolence. It's called self-interest. So the Apostle Paul says, stand firm regardless of any opposition that arise to you and whether I can get back to you or not. And of course, that's my desire for Westminster. I hope when the next pastor comes that you give him more support than you think that is within you and that you will encourage and pray for and enable that pastor to stand and to, with the elders, lead you to do the work of Christ. Stand in the Lord, he says. Secondly, the second command here is to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, the word rejoice here is not a figure of speech, and neither is the third thing that I'm going to mention. It denotes exactly what the Apostle Paul wants the church to do and to be, to rejoice in the Lord always. The word rejoice, and you might mark this down, the word rejoice or joy appears in this relatively short letter of Paul 14 times. 14 times. He has an understanding of the Christian life that is a joyful life. I would say then that we ought to give heed to this little word, this little three-letter word, joy, and the command to rejoice. And I know what you're going to say, Pastor. It's one of the hardest things to do. And and you are right. It is. It seems almost humanly impossible to, to be a person that can rejoice continually, as the Apostle Paul says. We are happy once in a while. Rejoicing is kind of a state that you're in. It's kind of an outlook. It's kind of an orientation. It is, if you will, a worldview. It's very easy to get very cynical about life and about politics and about our human institutions. And I would raise the question, how is it possible to rejoice in a world where every, everyone is flawed And everything has been distorted by the power and corruption of sin. How is it possible to rejoice in a world where we are more likely, and I choose my words carefully, more likely to receive bad news than good news? Invariably, everything goes wrong. Entropy ensures it. How can rejoice and possible to rejoice in a world where the vast lot of humanity lives in misery and privation and often under evil dictators and regimes. It only takes a little jaunt out of the country in certain locations and places to see how privileged we are here in this church. Is it not perverse, I would ask the question, is it not perverse to rejoice in a world where every, every last thinking, feeling, willing person appears to be here for only 
a little while like a vapor, and then we're gone. Having tasted only a few drops of honey, but a lot of gall. Now, this is a human problem, isn't it? I, I taught philosophy for a number of years, uh, Greek philosophy. One of the schools in later Greek philosophy was called Stoicism. It was a school to try to provide an answer or a way around this world that we live in and all of its suffering and misery. They had a response. And their response, from my perspective, was quite cynical. And their response was, don't let any event or any state of affairs that's out of your control disturb you or to disturb your soul in the least. No matter how unjust that state of affairs may be, if it's not in your control, shut your eyes to it. Turn your mind off. has nothing to do with you. It can only disturb you. And there are lots of religions based on the fact that you try to reach a place where you're not disturbed by the external world. Well, Paul was distressed at times by the external world. He still could rejoice. Stoicism. Stoicism. It was to have no feelings about things. Grin and bear it. Bite your upper lip. So you see, even if you did, as I did some years ago, see a small child be hit by a car, knocked feet first off of the road, don't stop and get out of your car. There's nothing you can do. Don't let it bother you. Get it out of your mind. Because the key is don't let yourself be disturbed. Stoicism. You run a risk, a painful risk if you fall in love as your lover may disappoint you. Better not to have loved than risk losing that love. Don't disturb your soul. Notice what an impoverished worldview this is. It may solve the problem, by the way. It may solve the problem of all that's in the world. Just shut it out. You get the idea. The Apostle Paul, by the way, has been accused of being a Stoic. Nothing could be further from the truth. How could a man like him command us to rejoice in the Lord and be a Stoic? Now, how can he do this, though? If you read Dostoevsky in his wonderful work, The Brothers Karamazov, you will read one of the most devastating chapters about suffering that I have ever read. And you wonder if there is any meaning at all. The Apostle Paul has an answer. It's very simple. It's interesting that he doesn't make large statements here to tell us to rejoice. He simply says, because the Lord is near. That makes all the difference. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. The Lord is near in time. There is a time known only to God that he will come and judge the worlds by his son, Christ Jesus. He will come for his redeemed and he will restore all things to its proper order. He will reward both the righteous and the wicked and he will heal all the wrongs and wipe away every tear and give comfort to all of those who mourn. 
That motivated the Apostle Paul to put things into perspective. The Lord is near. Goodness is eternal, but evil is not. We suffer for a while, but then comes a new day. That's why you can rejoice. Moreover, we can rejoice because not only is the Lord close in time, He's close in space. Remember that Christ dwells in His church and He dwells in your heart by faith. He is the head of the church and we are in fellowship with Him through the body of Christ. Now, don't forget, Paul is in prison. And if he is imprisoned in Rome, this was his last imprisonment. According to tradition, he was led outside the city of Rome to a place where today an abbey stands. The abbey is called the Abbey of Three Fountains, and it marks the place where the Apostle Paul was beheaded. You see, Paul never got back to see the Philippians. He had hoped for better. He had hoped for better. But he would see them not in this life, but the next. You see, the Apostle Paul had a perspective on life that allowed him to be able to give thanks in all circumstances and to rejoice in the Lord. He knew that God's grace in every situation was always sufficient. He knew that we were more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. You see, he has had his eyes fixed on the prize, upon the author and the finisher of our faith, that one who was crucified but now has been raised and is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Now, what a perspective that is. It's all in the perspective, isn't it? How do you see things? Do you see them in simply in, in uh, temporal terms or do you see them in terms of eternity? Do you see them in Christ or do you see them outside of Christ? If you see them outside of Christ, Paul is confident that the church in Philippi will overcome, be able to meet every challenge and seize every opportunity. James Dent preceded me, James Dent, James F. Dent, I think, preceded me by a dozen years in Stonewall Jackson High School, where I went to high school. He wrote for the Charleston Gazette and was a humorist that frequently, very frequently, almost every issue of the Reader's Digest, he was quoted. This is one of his quotes. A perfect summer day is when the sun is shining, the breeze is blowing, the birds are singing, and the lawnmower is broken. <laughs> For Paul, any day was a perfect day because the sun was shining. Help your kids understand that. The sun was shining. Now, finally, to my final point, we are not to be anxious, but pray and give thanks. Verse 6. 
Now, this is the same thing as casting one's care upon Jesus because he cares for you. This is the same thing as giving thanks in everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was reading an article recently about tips on how to lower one's blood pressure. Now, I've taught Eastern philosophy, so I know a little bit about Patanjali's great work on yoga. I do not quarrel with those who tout the benefits of meditation, provided the philosophy behind it is sound. It can be used by Christians. Meditation is just a tool. Like reading, it can be used, provided it's based on the right philosophy. On the other hand, I, I don't meditate much, I must tell you. I, I don't know about its benefits for blood pressure. But I want to tout something else for your blood pressure and for all that ails you. That you be quick to pray and give thanks. What does prayer do and what does thanksgiving do? It's, it's a marvelous thing if you think about it. What it does primarily is take us out of ourselves and fixes our eyes on an object other than ourselves. You might say its focus is not on us, but upon the presence of God himself. Paul's secret, if he had a secret, and he was not prone to keep secrets. If he had a secret, it was the role of prayer played in his life. He, he was always asking for prayer, no matter where he went. And he was also promising to pray for other people. Everywhere he went... Prayer is on his lips. Brothers, pray for me. I have you in my heart. Philippians, in some sense, is, is like a prayer. The entire letter. Anxiety and worry are ingredients that are baked into the world of sin and uncertainty. It is part of life's recipe. Just as there is a down, there is an up. And just as there is an east, there is a west. And just as we call some things small, therefore some things must be big. So anxiety and worry surround us in this world of sin and misery. Anxiety and worry is something that we do. Jesus talks much about it. The question is, how does one rise above such? Worry and anxiety are so debilitating. They're so non-productive, aren't they? We worry about everything. We're anxious about things that we don't know what we're anxious about. We're just anxious. How does one rise above this? How does one rise above it as a person and as a church? Let me remind you that a praying church is one who is prone to rise above this all the time. A person who is a praying person is one who has a different orientation. A thankful person is one who can give thanks in everything. 
Paul never made it back to Philippi. I plan on coming back to Westminster. In fact, I'll be around for a few more months and it may drive some of you crazy. <laughs> you wait and see. <laughs> I have some things in my mind. I'll be around for a few more months. But I plan and make plans just to the Apostle Paul. We never know when our last meeting takes place. No doubt I will not see some of you today in this room after today. Every meeting for the Christian has a little bit of eternity in it. Every time you see someone or meet someone, there's a little bit of eternity in that, a little bit of heaven. When we gather for a picnic, there's a little bit of eternity in that. When we shake each other's hand at the door or downstairs or greet each other or wave at each other on the road, there's eternity in that act. I think it's in our heart because there is a great reunion where we will be called from the east and the west to be seated at the table of the Lord. Paul did not get to see these people in this life but he knew that he would see them elsewhere where they had shared eternal things. Now, I say that not to be morbid, but to be rejoicing. I say that not to cast a pall over us, but some of us will not see each other after today in this room. It may not just be me, it may be any relationship. Therefore, remember Paul's instruction. Stand in the gospel. Rejoice in the Lord. Pray and give thanks in his name. Because those imperatives represent not the end, but the beginning. Praise be to God for his word. Amen.